This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Hello and welcome to Seven Pillars. This is a new podcast uh, where we interview a guest about the things that they like and love, influences on them from different fields, music or literature or food. We're looking for seven things that have shaped them or inspired them or influenced them. I'm Anna Davis. I'll be the host each time. And uh, for the first ever edition of um, Seven Pillars, our guest is the West Country's finest, Josh Whittacombe. How are you, Josh? I'm good, thanks, Alan. Well, as we both know, I'm absolutely sweltering. It's, it's kind of the hottest day of the year as we record. It is the hottest day of the year where your headphones, your earbud might become as one with your ear. <laughs> I'll, I'll become part man, part <laughs> podcast. Right, let's crack on. These are things that, that have all, not just things that you love and like, but somehow they've had a, an influence on you or made you think about yourself or the world or music or literature. Uh, and we'll start with your, with your book that you've chosen, uh, which is Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby. It's a book I love, of course, because yeah. it's about a life as an Arsenal supporter. And you've chosen in particular a chapter about Gus Caesar. Can you, can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I, I realised like Fever Pitch for someone of my age and kind of demographic is a cliched choice, I suppose. But um, I, I think there's almost an element of it changed so much and so much got shaped by it that it now seems like a cliché because of so many of the things it created. You know how, like, um, when The Strokes came along, it felt very exciting, and then about four years later, there was so much bad music that sounded like The Strokes that The Strokes themselves sounded worse, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I think, the, I think in a way, Nick Hornby's kind of tarred with the brush of everything that wasn't as good as him that followed. And so... It was kind of a book I read in the, maybe when I'm in the mid-90s, I suppose. It would have been a couple of years after it came out. I would have been about 13, 14, probably, when I read it. I was going to say, you were quite young when this came out. Were you born in 83, is that 83, right? 83, yeah. So when did this come out? 92? This 91? came out in 92, yeah. yeah. So you, you were... So a, I, I didn't read it straight away. I didn't read it straight away. I presume it must have come to you straight away as a kind of absolute gift yeah very much so yeah yeah I mean it's hard to find a good football book really but this is a book more than just football is it? it's a book about his life it's about childhood and uh, broken home and divorce exactly and I think it's about obsession you know and it's about obsession and it's about dealing with who you are the reason I haven't chosen the book as a whole but I've chosen the chapter about Gus Caesar who I've never seen as a footballer I've never seen him play but due to this chapter he operates this huge kind of part of my thoughts on ambition and life. And I reckon there's, it's a very, if you Google Nick Hornby Gus Caesar, the chapter is like on some website that'll come up as the first thing. And I reckon I read it often to someone when I'm drunk about once every two months. <laughs> <laughs> so Gus Caesar, for, for um, people who've never heard of him, he was a, an Arsenal player for a brief period of time and then after an, an accident-prone period in the first team, he left the club and never really a, a, attained the same heights again. And he in particular made a catastrophic error in the League Cup final in 1988, which led to an equalising goal when Arsenal were on the way to winning the Cup. And in the book, Nick Hornby talks about how he must have been the best player in his school. He must have been one of the best players in his district. He must have been. And then he's in the Arsenal team. Then he's in England under-21 squad. And it all seems to be going well. And yet, and yet he falls short. It's a section about kind of believing in yourself and how little that is worth. And I always think that's such a... I know this sounds so negative, but he kind of draws a parallel and he does say, you know... Sport and the arts aren't analogous, he says in it. He says, you know, there is no such thing as a brilliant footballer who's never been found because the scouting network is kind of foolproof. There's no such thing as a sprinter who can run under 10 seconds who isn't at the Olympics. But he draws the parallel that when he started writing, he believed in himself and he thought, I'm good, so I'll make it. 
And he basically says that Gus Caesar is a kind of, not a metaphor, a symbol maybe, of how however much you believe in yourself or however much the things tell you that this is inevitably going to happen is not necessarily the case and it's not true. And he kind of, at the end of the chapter, says you, you trust that feeling with your life and it's worth nothing. And I, I just really like that drawing. I mean, I'm kind of obsessed with sporting metaphor. I'd happily draw everything to a sporting metaphor. So I'm a kind of sucker for it. I think too often we see people who are successful tell you that all you've got to do is like believe in yourself and try and you'll get there. And I think that's a terrible message to give to our children. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of chance you weren't. He talks about uh, the book called The Hustler by Walter Tevis, which is, which became a film. And there was a part in the book where someone... And he wrote, he said, he, Nick Cormier said he wrote these words and typed them on a piece of paper, put it above his desk. That's what the whole goddamn thing is. You've got to commit yourself to the life you picked and you picked it. Most people don't even do that. You're smart and you're young and you've got, like I said before, talent. And then the next line is, as the rejection slips piled up, these words comforted me. (laughs) (laughs) He put those up up as an inspiration. You've got talent, surely it'll be all right. But as as Gus Caesar found, and it can be found, until fever pitch... That isn't the case. Exactly. There's, at the end, I, I just want to read a bit which kind of sums it up, where he uh, says, um, Gus must have known he was good, just as any pop band who's ever played the marquee know they're destined for Medicine Square Garden and NME front cover. Just as any writer who has sent a completed manuscript to Faber and Faber knows he is only two years away from the booker. You trust that feeling with your life. You feel the strength and determination it gives you, coursing through your veins like heroin. And it doesn't mean anything at all. Well, you know this is true from the world of stand-up comedy, don't you? Because everybody knows someone who gets the odd gig here and there, or maybe still doing open spots after five years, and they cannot understand why Michael McIntyre is doing so well. And then what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just I, the lesson that you should sell your life to something is going all in. It just feels like such a big thing, and I don't think it should be the taught principle of life and I suppose this argues against that and that's not just like oh your whole life but it's like I think it's a really good thing to bear in mind with every project you do or everything you do so you'll be writing a new thing or you'll be working on a new thing and you'll go this is the best thing I've ever done and then it's not good and there'll be another thing that you'll think ah this is a bit shit and then it's really good and it's almost like you are the worst judge of your own merits and self, I think. Do you know what I mean? I think it's certainly true that if you think you're doing good work, you're in trouble. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I do remember working on a BBC One sitcom in 1999 or something like that, and the, and the writer came in one day and he said he'd seen the rushes, and he said to me, I smell BAFTAs. <laughs> well, the red carpet was untroubled by the cast of that show. <laughs> There was no need for any silver polish. (laughs) I think all of the best comedians that I know are beset by self-doubt, and that's what makes you better. I think self-doubt should be taught in school as something that's actually very useful. I played in a charity game, the Arsenal Ex-Professionals and uh, Celebrity Eleven, has been going for years and years and years, and and Gus Caesar was playing. And... I played it right. This is 2004 or something. I mean, the idea of me going on a full-size football pitch now is laughable. But I played at right midfield, mm. and uh, Gus Caesar played behind me at right back. And he went on an overlapping run at one point at such speed that I've never seen anyone run so fast in my life. And I think that might be perhaps the thing that got Gus to where he got to. <laughs> He was astonishingly fast. He went all the way up the other end and then he turned around and yelled at me to go back and cover because he had to walk back. (laughs) (laughs) And then I looked across and Andy Linnigan was giving me positional advice, which I uh, (laughs) certainly took. I remember going for a loose ball and Anders Limpar was on the other team and he he left his foot in and caught me on the top of the foot. And the next day, my foot had swollen up so much I couldn't get my shoe on. And I realised that I'd been nobbled by Anders Limpar. <laughs> <laughs> it's the least violent footballer we ever had. <laughs> so we'll leave that there. That's a really nice thing to pick, that. It's something quite inspirational about that. And the rest of the book, of course, is well worth reading if you haven't yeah. read Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch. It really is a brilliant book. 
Well, Josh, we'll move on from there. We'll move on to uh, somebody else with a Liverpool connection. It's what a smooth segue. <laughs> it's effortless. Um, you've chosen for your uh, performance. So we, we're asking people to come up with some an event. It could be anything. It could be a sporting event or a performance or something they were at that really stayed with them and had a profound effect. And, you, and you've chosen Paul McCartney at Glastonbury in 2004. Yes, I have. I, I thought about sporting events because I was going to choose the uh, cricket. I went to the Cricket World Cup final, the Ben Stokes final, which is probably oh, wow. the greatest sporting event I've ever been to. But I don't think I learned. You know, I don't think it stuck with me in any other than going. I can't believe I was there. Whereas I think the experience of kind of seeing a beetle, I, I found that kind of transcendently different from any other musician you could possibly see if you know what I mean I actually saw David Barry at Glastonbury in 2000 in 2000 or 99 whichever one that was and that was amazing but I think the reason the Beatles mean so much more to me than people like David Bowie or the Rolling Stones or any other kind of peers is I just think their their story tells so much more than any other band they represent so many kind of stories of bands that have come since they represent the whole of the 60s and the fact that you had four people that came together, or certainly three who were so talented, who, you know, came together by chance and changed the world, I just think is by far the greatest story in pop music ever. And I think the fact Paul McCartney is still gigging, and he's still gigging now, he's going to do Glastonbury this year, and I find that kind of, I, th- I think Paul McCartney is a much derided figure, but I actually find him quite kind of inspirational in that he just likes playing live music. He's not doing it for the money. He's not trying to pay off an ex-wife. He just loves to play live. And he loves to play these songs that he wrote in the 60s and 70s mainly. He plays a few new ones which aren't as good. But I find him kind of inspiring in that way. That Despite the fact he's one of the two people in the, who kind of led the greatest band of all time, he just likes gigging. He just likes playing music. And was this a main stage, last thing, headline act yeah. kind of an event, a really huge crowd? So he played the pyramid stage and he closed the pyramid stage um, on the Saturday night. And I think I've been to Glastonbury because I'm from the West Country. So I started going when I was at like sick form. And then I've gone intermittently for the last 20 years, I suppose. And um, going to Glastonbury is an amazing experience. It's like no other festival in the. It just. I think there's a lot to be said for. And I'm sure you'll, you'll know this as a performer yourself, Alan. You'll see acts on tour, right? And we've done tours. And there's some nights that mean so much more to you than other nights for various reasons. Like London, obviously, is always a... Feels like a bigger event because you've got people in and you know... Or uh, Plymouth, for me, feels like a big deal and you want to do well. And other nights, you do as good a show, but it doesn't mean as much to you. And I always feel when you see an act at Glastonbury this must be the important gig that they've had in their diary all year. This is the one that means something to them. They're not closing Reading for a million pounds. They're there because they want to do it and it means a lot to them. And and so I think seeing a headliner at Glastonbury that you actually want to see is a very special experience and there's kind of no better way to watch a band. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. I've only been to the Glastonbury Festival once and it was in 1994 and at the time I was working on Radio 1 or as it was known for a little while, 1FM. And... uh, (laughs) We were getting, we were up doing a comedy show at night, so we had the end list, the night list, and and so all these bands that we'd never heard of. Uh, so there was a couple of those that I wanted to see in a little side tent away somewhere. One was on at two o'clock, one was on at five o'clock, I think. So we went to see one of these bands. They're great. I'm starving, hungry. I go and get some chips. I come back and watch the other band. Brilliant. In between those two bands, the set that I missed was Oasis. <laughs> Playing in a little tent at four in the afternoon. The next year, they were headlining the main stage. And I didn't get to see Oasis until... uh, And this really was an extraordinary event. It it was at 98, I think, at Main Road, Manchester. Oh, wow. And uh, everybody, 38,000 tickets went in two hours. Everybody in the stadium knew every word to every song. At one point, uh, the Gallagher brothers had an argument and... and, uh, Liam stormed off, and the crowd—that was the highlight of the night for yeah, the crowd. Yeah, come for right, and, uh, and and of course they're hugely influenced, obviously, by the Beatles. Mm. Big picture of John Lennon comes up, and then Liam comes back on with a massive joint and sits on the drum riser, and he's on the screen, <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the whole place cheering. It was a very memorable thing, but. Uh, 
it was uh, a few years after that I was asked to do a documentary on I'll present a documentary about John Lennon. I don't know why they asked me, but it was a great privilege to mm. do. I remember seeing that. It was a very interesting experience. Yeah. I found uh, my mum died when I was young, and this happened to him. And I found quite a few little things in the in the story that I could relate to. And um, anyway, I listened to a lot of their music, obviously, to get ready to do this thing. And as I listened to album after album. And, and listen to them again I suddenly thought well that sounds like that band and that sounds like that band and that's and then you realise that all bands post Beatles yeah. sound like the Beatles the influence yeah. is really extraordinary they changed everything and the, the period between kind of 1966 and 1970 I mean, I mean, in their lifetime of 63 to 70 they did like 12 albums which is unheard now you've got you know bands will take t- if a band did albums in consecutive years they'd be considered astonishingly productive but they were just bashing out these great great albums and the evolution from 63 to 70 is like no other band and i just think seeing i'm paul mccartney what is he now he must be 75 whatever he is i just think it's kind of amazing that he's still going he's still playing these songs people go oh paul mccartney he's a bit embarrassing isn't he and it's like yeah but he's in his 70s you know that's all right isn't it and he does still talk a bit like a hippie from the 60s yeah he? yeah he does <laughs> he just still use some of that language it's a bit outdated <laughs> well i remember at glastonbury he said it was like at one point, it was a rainy year, and he was like, can we rock in wellies? Yeah, we can. And you're like, oh, come on, Paul, mate. <laughs> He's not cool. He's not cool, which is mad to say. But I think if you've been the most famous man in the world since 1963, if you're not the biggest dick in the world, then you should consider that an achievement. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think that he's not an appalling human being is a pretty big achievement. Yeah. Well, you were there, you saw a living legend. Yeah. And it stayed with you. I can imagine it would. It really did. Now, I want to take you to Pembrokeshire, because we ask our guests to think of a place that's special to them, a place that uh, means a lot, or has influenced them, or has affected them, or has an emotional connection. And yours is Pembrokeshire. Well, you went, I'm told, on your childhood holidays. So every year we'd go on holiday to Pembrokeshire. I don't know if you've been... Have you been to Pembrokeshire? Um, I know Pembrokeshire because I was... In fact, a couple of years ago, went to Tenby. And, mm. um, and uh, yes, South Wales, southwest corner of Wales, isn't it? Very beautiful. It's unbelievably beautiful. I think it's, you know, got the most beautiful beaches in Europe, which is not me saying something for effect, but it's, like, genuinely... It's a startlingly beautiful place of yellow beaches and rocks and stuff. Um, but really, it was where we went on family holidays. So we'd go on the same family holiday every year. We were kind of creatures of habit. How many How many in your family? So it's kind of... Uh, that's a grey area, Alan. So... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the West Country. <laughs> <laughs> so... There was me, my dad and my mum, but then my dad had four children by his first marriage. So I've got four, two half-brothers and two half-sisters. Oh, I see. So this would be when they'd come or some of them would come. They're all older than me, Um, obviously, because by the first marriage, it would be insane if I was in the middle. And so they'd come. So it was kind of, I grew up kind of as an only child to some extent, but on another extent, they were my brothers and sisters that didn't live with me. And so it was a period of time for two weeks a year where I wasn't an only child in that sense. So it was um, it was great in that respect. It was I was very close to my older brother, Henry. He's about three and a half years old. About He's three and a half years older than me. And so we'd kind of hang out, which we didn't get to do enough, obviously, because we lived in different parts. They live in Cornwall, we lived in Devon, uh, which, as you know, is, is a hugely different world. And... <laughs> And doubtless, doubtless you feel quite superior to them. Yeah, of course, of course. But <laughs> you've, got, you've got to let these people have a chance, Alan. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'd go on these holidays and we'd kind of do the same things every year. I suppose some people might go, that's a bit unambitious and boring. But I kind of love that. I kind of enjoy, I kind of thrived on the repetition and, and the tradition and the doing the same things and having the same day. And that kind of then becomes almost a bigger memory of your childhood than if you went to France once or if you went to whatever it kind of became this kind of I suppose in the way that you know Christmas you all every family has their own traditions for Christmas and you repeat the same things every year in an attempt to kind of recapture that same feeling of family warmth and kind of you know repetition and I suppose our holidays were a similar kind of 
attempt to do that. Do you know what I mean? An attempt to just live the same thing as you grew up year on year. And it was a kind of very happy experience. Children like things that repeat. We, mm. did, we did that. We had that great day. Let's do that again. Yeah. You want to go there again? You want to read that book again? You want to watch that program again? You want to go to that beach again? Yeah, it was great. Why don't we just do that again? They can't actually understand why they don't have the same meal every day. But we like that meal. That meal's great. Yeah. And they do build up a kind of in, uh, a kind of thickened memory bank if you keep doing those things. Totally. That's exactly <laughs> what it becomes. It's just a kind of comfort of the repetition and the kind of doing something again and again and would you camp or would you caravan or was it hotels yeah so we'd camp we'd camp which now i just would i just don't want to sound like <laughs> totally or i just i just couldn't do that now i'd, I'd hate it so it would be two or two or three tents quite a lot so of... we had one of those big tents where you'd have two my parents on one side and then me and henry would have the so you'd have like the the compartments and then the kind of mm-hmm. Foyer, as for foyer, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, foyer, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then we maybe have another couple of tents. But, you know, you're on a campsite where it's, what is it then those days, seven quid a tent a night, and you have to mm. walk up to the showers that are, you know, showering at a parochial football club, I suppose, and, like, you know, and it, they're outdoor toilets and stuff. But you don't care when you're a kid. Now I probably would, you know, I've been spoiled. Well, now you can Airbnb, can't you? That's what we did in Tempe. Yeah, we found a cottage exactly. for rent. Exactly. And you've got all your cutlery and you don't have to eat out of plastic and stuff. But at the time, I loved camping. I actually bizarrely got asked to do a, a feature for Country File because I think they, they approached me because they thought I was going to want to talk about Devon and they wanted me to go to a kind of place that mattered to me. So I said, oh, I'd quite like to go back to Pembrokeshire for the first time in years. And they... Um, kind of took me back and they were like so we're going to camp on the same campsite and I was like oh for fuck's sake really <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like it that much yeah, alright <laughs> can we just film it and then go to a hotel <laughs> <laughs> what's there's a place in uh, near Tembe where there are water lilies and lakes and you have mm. to walk quite a long way to get to a beach what's that place so called? that's the Boshaston lily ponds that lead to Broadhaven Beach that's it yeah so beautiful amazing my kids just loved it yeah and little bridges and you keep going for miles and miles and it's like nowhere else and you know i think obviously partly one of the reasons west wales and cornwall are so beautifully untouched is obviously they're the furthest away from the rest of the country so obviously if that was in norfolk it would be absolutely rammed but it does feel like for want of a less cliche it feels like a bit of a secret you know what i mean it doesn't feel like you're like, how is this not more well-known as this amazing area of the country? And I don't, I, I genuinely, I don't know why we started going there. It's not like we haven't got any connection to it or anything. We just started going there and got stuck in a rut. And so I can remember different things happening that are years apart. Like, I remember listening to Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams there, which would have been, I think, 91. But then I remember <laughs> being there... <laughs> I remember like having the the CD and I remember I was there when Be Here Now, the Oasis album came out because I bought it on the day of release in Pembroke and that would have been 1997. And so I was like, these things that are miles apart have all melded into one memory, which like sums up a decade of my life, but it's kind of summed up by the repetition of doing all these same things. Like we'd literally live the same day every day. We'd go into Pembroke in the same morning and then we'd always go to the arcade and we'd play on the arcade machines that would slightly change every year and when we'd come back the next year and they weren't the same, we'd be absolutely livid. And then <laughs> we'd go to the beach in the afternoon and the, like it was so ticking off these experiences again and again. I don't know whether my parents were like, this is boring, but like they certainly put up with our... Well, you do know that if the kids are happy, they're, they're fine. And if the kids can amuse themselves, yeah, they're fine with it. And then when, when you're all asleep... Doubtless they drank themselves stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's wonderful. Pembrokeshire, it is gorgeous. The the risk always, of course, with Wales is it will rain at some point. Yeah, but there's there's Um, a glory to camping in the wet, isn't there? That's the one time when camping is kind of wonderful. It's heroic. Yeah, that, that kind of feeling of being in a tent with the rain on it, except at Glastonbury. I never did much camping, although I did when I was 16. I, I went with uh, three friends on three motorbikes, and I went on the back of one of their bikes to Silverstone for the British Motorcycle Grand Prix. Mm. And uh, we go to Silverstone, 
and we put the three bikes and kind of three sides of a square and all we had was a fly sheet. I don't know what we were thinking. We put the fly sheet over the three bikes and the four of us lay underneath them. I don't think we even had sleeping bags. We were very oh, wow. ill-equipped, but we were teenagers. Yeah. Anyway, it was a monsoon that night. An absolute <laughs> monsoon. And no one seemed to care. I mean, people were mud sliding along on their bellies and the river was, there's a river of water running down the country lane near to where we were. We were wet through. The next morning the sun came out and we kind of got dry enough and went and watched the race. And then we got lost on the way home and ended up on the M25 construction site. That was a memory I stayed with. <laughs> I um, camped at Glastonbury. Obviously camped at Glastonbury every year. But like um, the year... God, I think it was 2007 when it was like the worst rain of all time. And so I was in a field that was on a hill and we were about <laughs> halfway up. And it had been dry the day before. And the part reason that makes it even worse, because obviously the ground was dry, so it couldn't even take the kind of water. And so we were kind of halfway up the hill. And then you looked, woke up and it felt like we had were on a waterbed with water streaming underneath the, the tent. Got out and there was tents at the bottom of the field where you could literally see like just the top of the tent poking out of this river. And you were just like, it was just, it was like nothing I've ever seen. It's a write-off. Leave it, it's a write-off. Yeah. <laughs> we'll say it's been stolen. We'll get a claim. <laughs> I can't imagine the carnage cleaning up after that. Oh, event. God. And a good deal. Well, that's lovely to hear about Pembrokeshire. It does sound like somewhere that's been profoundly meaningful. Mm to you let's move on to music you've chosen uh, as your as an album we ask people to pick an album or a collection of music um, and you've chosen Quiet is the New Loud by Kings of Convenience which I've been listening to on your behalf for the last few days and it's mellowed me right out tell, tell me about this it really does mellow you out it's, I wouldn't say it's like a great example of um, what I listen to but I kind of you know in terms of albums that you'd come back to in the same mood every time I think being kind of wistful and melancholic is kind of my favourite mood to kind of luxuriate in, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kings of Convenience, you might have to tell you might have to tell people a bit about them because they're, um... they're a kind of a, a, a folk guitar duo uh, who kind of from Norway, Josh. From Norway. From Norway, yeah. From Norway. <laughs> they're a Norwegian guitar duo. Norwegian guitar duo, but they do a kind of almost a spoken word approach to music. Yeah, but I, I think you know I'm gonna I'm gonna go as far as say they're my favourite Norwegian guitar duo. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, if you take the word guitar out of it, I don't know a half from Norway. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's quite. It seems to be quite a lot of wry humour in the in some of the lyrics. Is that would that be fair? There's lots of nice little turns of phrase. There's there's a kind of the one that like jumps out to me is like there's a bit about him kind of walking down the street in the rain and uh, the line is using the guardian as a shield against the rain which creates a lovely image obviously of the the guardian when it used to be you know a, uh, a primarily a print newspaper being used against the rain. also i think it's a lovely kind of question as to how a norwegian has i mean i don't know whether they've been told by some ARR, A&R man to anglicise their lyrics so that they've removed the Norwegian newspaper from this... Um... Yeah, the Hågenblatt. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to sell any in London if you up. say that. Yeah. <laughs> now, when did you come across this? What age were you, do you think, you, you were when you came across them? I was about 20... I was about 20, actually, yeah. So it would have been about year two or three in first or second year of uni. No, second or third year of uni when I was living in Manchester. And... I, it was a time when there was lots of great guitar music around. I kind of spoke earlier, as I mentioned earlier, like that kind of period after the strokes had broken when there was lots of kind of really good angular post-punk style bands that came out of that, which I was really into. But this just, it didn't really sound, this was not like other things I listened to. And one of the things about it is I struggle with folk when it gets to the kind of Laura Marling, Joni Mitchell end of it, where you or where it's or Seth Lakeman or something where it feels like it's folk in the way where you'd hear it in a Cornish pub is not what I'm into and this feels like you've got that softness and that wistfulness of the acoustic guitar but with a more kind of wry Norwegian mindset which I quite like and I think because I don't listen to a lot of music like it and I'm not a big folk fan whenever I want to listen to something like that I kind of default to it 
if you know what I mean. Do you associate a particular house that you lived in or yeah. place where you were or someone you broke up with? This sounds like listening. This sounds like you listen to this music alone. I would have thought. Yeah, you. It would be a weird, uh, weird <laughs> album to uh, to to have sex to. You wouldn't have sex to it, would you? Do you know? Think. <laughs> It's not a shaggy record, is it? No, I'm going to disappoint you. It's not a black exploitation compilation. It's more of a kind of foreplay going nowhere record than anything else, isn't it? It's a, it's a record you put on when you've crashed a car. It's the dead of night, and you're waiting for the rescue services to get. To you. Do you know what? Do you know what it is? <laughs> what record it is, Alan? It's when you've had like a bad gig, and you're on a train home, and your train's delayed, and it's half twelve, and you're thinking. What am I doing with my life? Is that kind of record? <laughs> I, I, I don't imagine you have many bad gigs, Josh Whittaker. Oh, well. <laughs> you find a way out of it. You just pull out the cash machine routine and just bring it back. <laughs> Turn that ship around. <laughs> um, but it, uh, I, I think I just come back to it a lot because it's what I listen to when I'm feeling a bit a bit down but like wanting to look luxuriate in it, I suppose. And I, I think it's kind of... I, I the, the second album they did after that wasn't as good, and then they kind of Erland Oi, the kind of main guy, did some solo stuff. But I've never. It's not like a band that means loads to me, but it's just a, an album that maybe hit me at the right time when I didn't really listen to anything like that, and so I'd keep returning to it. And conversely, kind of just when I think when you're twenty and you listen to music, it means so much more to you than when you're thirty-seven and you listen to music, because everything you listen to when you're thirty-seven is referencing something else. So you, you, there's nothing new to listen to when you're 37, if you know what I mean. And so nothing's ever going to be... You know how they say, like, drug addicts are always chasing that first hit and they never have it again? I, I kind of feel like that's the same with music, isn't it? It's never going to feel the same. I certainly think that if you ask people... I mean, I wrote a book about 10 years ago about my influences in my teens and early 20s. Mm. I think if you ask most people... What's your favourite book or film or album? It'd be something they came upon in that period of their life. As you say, when things were new to you and you you would change your favourite band or favourite film every two weeks and then something becomes set. Yeah. These are the things I like and I've done that now. I'm not not researching anymore. (laughs) I'm complete. This is my favourite record and that's that. (laughs) I've been a bit like that with the jam. I had a brief moment in 1994 with Bare Naked Ladies who suddenly usurped the jam. Oh, really? Because, yeah, they had more jokes. <laughs> That's slightly more... Uh, <laughs> yeah. A bit more of a laugh than Paul Weller. Weller's not known for his repartee. Oh, well, that's lovely. Well, that's Quiet as the New Loud by Kings of Convenience, which Josh has chosen for his favourite collection of music. Let's move on to food, Josh. We asked people, is there a, t- a food stuff or a particular meal or a place where you go to eat that means something for you? Where, where are you with food? I've chosen... Not Cornish pasties. No, I'm not chosen Cornish pasties. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, no, I, I have chosen. I could have chosen cream tea actually. I've, I've, I regret my choice now. But I've chosen. I think what I wrote down was getting an Indian takeaway when I'm hungover, which is just mm-hmm. my favourite thing to do possible. Is there, it's no better moment though, is there, than when it arrives? Oh, no. And you're getting it from the front door to the kitchen. Oh. And then from, then it's downhill, really, from there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you end up just eating the popper dog. Yeah, of course. It's so much better in theory. And you end up, what you end up doing is having a discussion about whether you should put all these kind of three quarters of a kind of t- like tin dish into your fridge. And you don't. People say, what's that one taste like? Well, the same as that one. And the same as that one. But it's all good, though, is it? It's a good solid six out of ten. Oh yeah, is is the dial thick enough? Yeah, good. Um, but I um, love it. I, I think one of the things is if people say, "Do you know what? What do I?" So I've got a two and a half year old daughter, and people say, "What do you miss? Do you miss like going out or whatever when you're parenting, when you're now a parent?" And the thing I miss the most is being able to enjoy a hangover. So like, <laughs> I used to, and I didn't realise obviously that that was in any way a luxury until now, but. Like, <laughs> Like, so prior to this, prior, you know, you could go out and you'd just feel terrible. You'd feel terrible in the day and you'd go on the Sunday or whatever and you'd be fine with it. You didn't mind wasting the day. You'd watch two Premier League matches. You'd kind of do stuff badly. You'd have a nap and you'd find it funny how bad you felt and then you'd have a curry. And now you kind of, you're forced to 
obviously parent for the day after you've been out. Well, the first few hours of parenting, you're still drunk, can't you? Yes. What happens is as you get further into life, you can hold more and more drinks. So by the time you're in your, your time of life, your, your, your hangover doesn't really kick in till about three in the afternoon. <laughs> by, which, by which time you've done seven or eight hours of parenting. <laughs> but this is the problem with it. It's like people think, can you get a babysitter for the hours when you're out? That's not when you need the babysitter. The babysitter you need is the next day. Like, yes. I, I'd, I'd almost prefer to take my child out on the piss and then. So hangover police. That would be quite a good business. Yeah. We'll come around. If you hangover, we'll come around. <laughs> So yeah, I, I I don't get to enjoy my hangover now until seven p.m. when my daughter's gone to bed, and so you're kind of your whole day is building. It builds, and I know I'm going to get a curry because I always get a curry because I am, as I've established already, a, a total creature of habit, and so I look forward to this all day. And for all the kind of you know lovely meals I've been out for in my life, none fills me with joy as much as that experience of getting the Indian takeaway when I'm feeling hungover. What do you order? What do you have? Uh, same thing every time, Alan. So my wife, she she isn't veggie, but I am. And I've, over the years, broken her down because she wasn't eating enough of her chicken dish. So it's all veggie now. Because I was like, you can't... Good work. You can't just have two spoonfuls of that. So we'll get garlic naan, probably four poppadoms with all the dips, then uh, vegetable danzak, tarkadal, sagaloo, and then uh, tikka paneer. Chana masala? Oh, I do like a chana masala. Well, they, they'll give us... Do you know what? They give us a bonus dish as well if we go over £20 at my local one, which we do. <laughs> and so I'll kind of change that between chana masala and uh, bindi badgie. And um, that's a kind of a wild card, that dish. That is a wild card. That, that'll divide a room. Yeah, but I'm happy to divide them because there's only two of us. So I'm more than happy to divide it. Well, the joys of an Indian takeaway. I couldn't agree more. I love Indian food. I try and yeah. get my kids to eat it as soon as possible. If you get it down their neck early, they won't complain about it being too spicy But later on. Yeah. Do you know, I've got this thing as well where I always presumed I didn't like spicy food because I'm essentially a bit of a kind of weed and, like, not really into, you know, I'm not a, like, lad. But actually, I'm really into spicy food. And I always have been, but I just have presumed I haven't because it's not, doesn't, work with my personality type if that sounds <laughs> like that sounds such a weird thing to have Just keep but... a jar of chili flakes in the cupboard you could always spice it up yeah when you corn flakes in the morning <laughs> jamie oliver has chili on his breakfast because he said it gives him a hit that's one of the few things i've ever picked up from someone saying on the last leg that stuck with me <laughs> did, you, did you sure he didn't say it gives him the shit <laughs> <laughs> sounds more likely that does sound more likely <laughs> Well, your favourite food is an Indian takeaway, and I cannot say I blame you. Let's move on to your film choice. Yeah, you've chosen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm. uh, which is a 2004 film, I think, by yeah. Charlie Kaufman, starring Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet. What is it about that one that gets you? I think it's. Uh, I think what I like is um, it has a lot of things that kind of appeal to me about films in one place in that it's got I'm a sucker for a kind of indie sensibility to not just films to kind of music or anything really and on top of that I think a high concept movie is always a pleasure do you know you know the classic kind of um, elevator pitch movie Mm -hmm. style thing that that's always thrilling and when that is made to work whether that be this or whether that be the Truman Show or whether that be uh, Groundhog Day. So if you haven't seen it, listen, this film uh, is a couple, uh, played by Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, who have a relationship, break up, and then there's a company that offers you the chance to have the memory of your doom- your doomed and failed relationship erased. Yes. And they both take this option. Yeah. And then the film unravels into a kind of, kind of a mixture of their memories and the real event, and you're with them with Jim Carrey while his memory's being erased and he's in and out of it and it's so it's a lot of time shift mm. being played with Kate Winslet dyes her hair about ten times in the film which kind of helps you root where you are in you, the time you get, you get the feeling that the hair dye has come as a late note on the script to in some way say could we have some kind of visual signifier to help people understand help where the hell we are in the story where the hell we are in the story I should confess that this film, I mean, I'm a big fan of Charlie Kaufman, I'm a big fan of adaptation, 
and uh, and being John Malkovich. This film I remember being disappointed by because I'd seen the trailer for it, mm. and in the trailer they do a montage of a sequence. Jim Carrey is one of the most brilliant comedians in the history of cinema. Yeah, they do a montage sequence. Um, to Mr. Blue Sky by ELO, the, the single most upbeat pop rock tracks ever been yeah. played. A song that no one dislikes. <laughs> That's quite a claim. And I'm in the cinema watching this, and Mr. Blue Sky's playing. There's Jim Carrey doing this stuff. I think this is going to be hilarious. It's so upbeat that anyway, it turns out to be quite a maudlin, sad, but, but wry and intelligent and clever film. Mm. With a brilliant performance by Kate Winslet. In which Jim Carrey is almost not not funny really at all. No, you you wanting him to do a bit more gurning. I was furious. I wanted <laughs> Ace Ventura, pet detective. I wanted somebody stop me. You know, I wanted this guy. Where, so you were watching they... this thinking I preferred Liar Liar, is what you were thinking. <laughs> cable guy. I prefer the cable guy. So he's obviously taken the part to show his range. He shrunk yeah. himself down. To a kind of sensitive guy, does it does it well enough? But on second viewing, also I didn't know, and uh, I didn't know where the title came from. I didn't know it was a quote. I've never heard of Alexander Pope. It's a quote right. from an Alexander Pope poem from the 18th century, which is a you know, how to paraphrase this. It's about a couple who are in love and then they reconnect 20 years later. It's about lost love being rediscovered. Mm. And that's kind of what the film is about too, isn't it? In that. Yeah. So it's a kind of a reference there for you in the title if you know it, but they don't really play on it. No. I mean, it's, at its essence, it's a romantic comedy in a weird way, in the sense of it's a it's a story about a couple, and for one, it's almost like, despite that kind of almost science fiction premise that they both go and get their memories erased, you then get this kind of meditation on what it means to have in, into what a relationship means to you and what it's like to go back through all the memories of the relationship and what a relationship's worth to you. And then obviously you get, I, I, yeah, I won't spoil the ending, but it's, you know, it's also, it's very neatly brought together at the end and there's kind of some, you know, interesting decisions made without trying to be a spoiler on it. There are. And also there's this quite odd little side thing going on. Well, while, they're, while they're doing this thing to Jim Carrey, Kirsten Dunst and Mark Ruffalo... Mm. are engaged having a kind of a new fledgling relationship of their own around him while he's asleep it's very odd yeah different layers of storytelling going on and she's the one who brings up pope alexander she calls him yes in a throwaway line in the middle and she's uh, and there's uh, tom wilkins plays a very good kind of there's like, like lots of extra interesting kind of uh subplots going on I think the thing with it is, you know, it's beautifully shot because it's Michelle Gondry and it's beautifully shot. It looks great. You know, I, I suppose along with my music choice and a weird way with the choice of the traditional family holiday, I do just quite enjoy that kind of maudlin sensibility, it turns out. You know, I, that's where I kind of like to... Dis and I suppose the same with sitting having an Indian hungover. That's where I like to disappear to. <laughs> we'll, have a, we'll have an Indian... We'll listen to Kings of Convenience, then we'll watch Eternal Sunshine. <laughs> By the way, have I told you about the failure of Gus Caesar? Do you know I like it's like... Uh, yeah, have I told you that all optimism is pointless? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's going to go well for you. Yes, yes, I'm going to choose to decide that you're quite grounded, and that's why. Well, it's a good film. It's a better film for me the second time around because I was I was really thrown off by the trailer and it really should be illegal to use an upbeat pop song in your trailer if it doesn't feature in the film. <laughs> Do you think... Well, they've literally... What they've done is they've gone uh, sunshine... Spotless mind, right? It's kind of blue, blue sky. That'll do. They've typed blue sky into Spotify or whatever, and they've come yeah. up with it. They haven't. That's <laughs> yeah. how they've made the trailer. They've definitely outsourced the trailer to another company. Yeah. Oh, I've been dying to use this ELO. Have you ever heard of ELO? It's amazing. You was banned. I've found. I've been dying to use this song. We'll use it on this, and then they they lure in the Jim Carrey fans. It was a kind of a, an odd pairing, Jim Carrey and Kate, was it? But um, they're both very very. Very, very good in the film. I think they're both kind of playing against type and, like, there's such great performances in it. I met Mark Ruffalo on um, Graham Norton and he was an absolutely lovely bloke. And uh, yeah. and I was like, you know when you're like, oh, I reckon I could be mates with him. And then I went on his Wikipedia and it said he's a 9-11 truther and I thought, I'm not really into this anymore. 
I'm very familiar with him because my kids are making me go through all of the Avengers films oh, in right, lockdown. And I held on for a while because they're not old enough for this certificate. But then I, ca- I caved. Now the four-year-old's <laughs> going around the house pretending to be Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful film. Thank you for that, Josh. Well, we've just really got one last thing. Um, it's been fascinating to hear you talk about all these different things, um, which is a memory... Before we move on to your memory, I want to, um, for listeners who are, want to find an email to address a mistake made earlier, um, uh, Paul Newman was the star of The Hustler, not Steve McQueen, as is, uh, is it written in Nick Hornby's brilliant book, Fever Pitch. It was, of course, the fantastic Paul Newman. So let's talk about your favourite memory then. So this was a memory. So it was kind of, it's not necessarily like my favourite memory in the sense of child being born. But it was like, I think it was, I was just thinking of a memory, it's kind of where you disappear to or something that kind of represents something for me. And I was thinking about driving through Derbyshire on my last tour. Let's be honest, Alan, being driven. And um, we, you know, let's make no bones about having a tour manager. And I, it was... it was. The... Are you in the passenger seat up front or are you in the back of a big van? Passenger seat up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man of the people. Just the two of you. Just the two of us. But there was usually a support, but there was a different. There is a support, but there was a different support between these two gigs, so there was no one in the car except us. And it was the first gig, first day after um, the tour, the first night of this tour that I'm currently doing. It's currently on indefinite hiatus at the time of yeah, podcast. Ouch. <laughs> and. Often on tour, you know, you're going from one place to the other and, you know, it's, it's the same old, same old. Or it's before a tour, or it's before a piece of work and you're worried about it and it's, you know, you don't know whether it's good, you don't know whether it's bad, you're putting in all the effort and it's really stressful. And the first night of the tour had gone well and I kind of liked the show, which is not always the case, I'm sure you kind of understand. Mm-hmm. And it felt like... It just was a strange moment in working where it felt like I didn't feel under pressure anymore and I felt like I'd done so I felt like I'd done this show I liked this tour show I liked and we were driving through the kind of beautiful peak district and it reminded me very much of I don't know if you're aware of the artist Mr Bingo no uh, so he's like this very good kind of artist does funny art from East London I've found his uh, website Mr Bingo artist speaker and twat yeah that's him so and that sums up the kind of so he does he's got this piece of art which is called the anxiety circle right and it's basically a large circle like like a roundabout and i'd say 95 percent of it is one color and it's labeled under underlying anxiety about the next thing and then the other five percent is that thing being fine and then it goes back onto the other 95 percent which is underlying anxiety about the next thing and that kind of sums up my life of make of doing stuff in that I'm constantly anxious about the next thing and then there's that small moment when you do it and you're like, oh God, it was fine after all. And then something else comes along and you're anxious. And that driving through after the first gig of the tour and thinking, this is going to be all right. This show's really fun and good and I like it. I had a good night last night. And it's so rare that I get that where I'm not worrying about something in my kind of life that that stands out to me as a real moment. And it also was so, if you've not been to the pictures, it's so beautifully picturesque. It was overcast. It is a gorgeous part of the world. Yeah, as you can imagine, overcast appeals to me with the, the mood I've <laughs> kind of given in this podcast. Were you going to the uh, Buxton Opera House? I was going to the Buxton Opera House. Yeah. You know that the Buxton Opera House is such a beautiful venue that you're going to have a great night. Yeah, lovely. And that was like one of those times when you're like, I need to remember this. I vividly remember thinking, I need to remember this because this is going to, you know, it's not always like this. And this is a real moment of like, I'm pleased with what I'm doing and what I've done. And I'm kind of happy in this moment. You know what you can do? And uh, I think it's Paul McKenna who does this. Who's the Mm. hypnotist guy who makes people give up smoking? Yeah, yeah, that's him. You get your tip of your fourth finger Mm. and your thumb and you touch them together. And then you think of a special moment. Right. For you, it could be that. Yeah. And you think of that moment, and then from now on, whenever you touch the tip of your finger to your thumb, that moment will come back to you. Oh, wow. And I'm telling you this, it works. Really? It works. And that's a lovely memory, and I know exactly what you mean. Have you got, have you got memories there then, Alan? I've got something there. It's in the swimming pool in Spain. <laughs> and, 
It's not dirty. <laughs> but it was a, a moment on the family holiday. But I have one, yeah. And once, and actually, once you pick one, it's very difficult to change it. You'll have to have a different finger. Yeah. <laughs> You've got ten different memories. <laughs> ten different memories. Mr Bingo's got an online supermarket, and you can buy a print of the Anxiety Circle for £75. He's, he's an absolutely brilliant artist. Just everything he does is so kind of funny and original. Um, so I've got like, we've got like loads of kind of things he's done. I'd advise everyone to check him out. He did one for Valentine's Day, which is a picture of four different couples kissing with just the word c**ts written on it. <laughs> <laughs> he's really good. I'll tell you, while I think of it, while I think of it... Um... Uh, speaking about the Buxton Opera House, uh, mm. I, I usually, if I'm doing a stand-up gig, I'll have a little table which will have my set list on it because mm. I can't remember anything. And also it'll have a bottle of water. And I had Buxton water on the table, which mm. was provided by the venue. Of course. And uh, I made some remark about the Buxton water and that you really can get something going in Buxton if you talk about spring water. <laughs> <laughs> they are very proud I bet. of... Of their water. I mean, I just want to say something. It's not like the Champagne region of France, is it? It's not really something that you could say this sort of pride in. This is ridiculous. It's it's water. It's the best. Okay. Yeah. It's the best bottled water in the land. And, I, and I t- you know, it is exceptional. There's no denying. I don't know whether I could taste test it. Um, it's the perfect combination of hydrogen and oxygen. Is that particles. right? They've really nailed that. <laughs> I mean, it's hardly the Coca-Cola secret formula, <laughs> but they've bottled it. They have literally bottled it. <laughs> it it's so nice, but like those theatres which you go to, they call Matcham theatres that are designed in such these kind of yes, by Matcham. Astonishing Victorian mm. theatres are just so amazing to get to play. I did Buxton once, and my sound went like the mic went or whatever. It didn't make any difference. Do you know what I mean? They could just hear you because it was designed to. Yes, to be heard. And you go, I don't quite understand how we've got to this situation where theatre design has gone backwards in the last hundred years, but that seems to be the kind of case. Oh, well, people like to change things, don't they? It's one of those venues where it's nice to play and it's nice to sit in the audience too. It's just a nice place to be, rather like the Happy Empire. Wonderful. Similarly, a match of theatre. Well, just we're at the end. We're at the end of your seven pillars. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think what I found quite interesting is unknowingly I've worked out that my favourite things are feeling a bit down do you know what I mean or feeling a bit kind of melancholic a lot of but you've embraced the melancholy rather than fight it and that this may be why you come across as a much more contented person than you actually are (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's all part of the mask it's all part of the mask Josh Whittacombe thank you very much thank you for having me 